welcome to the Truth Ward Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have benefited from this podcast or any of Olin's books, we'd like to ask you to leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast or wherever you purchase your books. Now, here's Olin. All right, guys, if you got your Bible, let's open up to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, and we're going to look at the covenant of grace today, specifically starting with uh, Abraham. So uh, the very first week, we looked at Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and we said primarily uh, God started with what some call the covenant of works. Some other people call it the covenant of life or uh, the covenant of creation. But then after Adam and Eve have sinned, instantly, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, starting verse 15, we start to see the covenant of grace emerge, that God had said, you eat of the forbidden fruit, you'll die that day, but there was a stay of execution. They didn't die, and God began to interact with them in a more obvious, gracious way. It was very shadowy at that time, and so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where it becomes a lot more clear. Now, if you were to read Genesis chapter 4 through 11, don't worry, we're not going to take the time to do that now, but go back and do it on your own later if you want to, or probably most of us have read it before, and you remember, there's lot, not a lot of obvious good news, Genesis chapter 4 through 11. There's a lot of death, destruction, and murder. Uh, in the middle of there, you have the flood with uh, Noah, and I think it's Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, there's this famous phrase where it says, Every intent of the human heart was evil always. And the world became so wicked that God said, I'm going to wipe out the whole planet, start again. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he and his family were saved, and God started over. And Genesis chapter 12 is where we get introduced to Abram, uh, whose name is later changed to Abraham. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 11 at the very end, starting with verse 30, because it's an important point. Now, Sarai... This is Abram's wife, was barren. She had no child. Now, chapter 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, he's a 75-year-old man. Uh, He has a wife. Uh, She's barren, so they have no children. And God comes and speaks. Now, at this point in time, he was probably living in more of an urban area. Uh, he, He was very wealthy. We find out later they had 318 kids. And God says, just leave and go to the country I'm going to tell you about. Massive step of faith. Trust in the Lord. But God said, I'm going to bless you. I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. Uh, In chapter 13, he goes to Egypt and has some hard times there. But even in Egypt, God protects him. In chapter 14, Lot is taken captive by some pagan kings. And Abraham uh, gets the family together, goes back, and rescues Lot. So now we're about 25 years later, and we're going to pick up in chapter 15. So flip over to chapter 15, and we'll start there, verse 1. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that Abraham was either fearing or at least being tempted to fear at that time. It may have been, I just went and rescued my nephew from all these pagan kings, and they might come back and want some revenge. That may have been part of it. But it seems like more of what's going on is 
He's 100 years old now, and he hates the fact that he's childless. And we're going to see that this comes out. Verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So God made him this great promise 25 years ago. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a family. Your family is going to be so great that all the families of the earth will be blessed through your family. 25 years later, no kids, no family. The promise seems hollow. The promise seems empty. My guess is in a room like this, we might have some men that have been praying for something for 25 years and it hadn't happened yet. Don't give up. Don't lose faith. One of the things that I'm still learning about the Lord is God is not in a hurry. God is never late. He never tarries. He is always right on time. But his right timetable rarely matches up with my so-called right timetable, right? Because I am often in a hurry. And God has perfect timing. And so much of faith, guys, is learning how to trust God's timing. Oftentimes what we're praying for, we often have the right what. The more mature you are in Christ, the more our desires get aligned with him. We're oftentimes praying for the right thing. But we oftentimes miss him in the timing. At least that's been my experience. Think about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You don't have to turn there. It says, basically, what does it mean to have faith? You have to believe that God exists and that he's the rewarder of those that earnestly seek him. Now, listen. Believing that God exists, that he is, biblically speaking, everybody believes he is, whether you say you believe he is or not. Believing that God really does always reward the people that earnestly seek him. That's a lot harder, right? We know it's true in our mind. We don't always feel that it is true in our experience. And that's where the fight of faith comes, okay? Deep down, there can become this insecurity. This is what Adam and Eve dealt with. This is what Abram is wrestling with. And this is what we often wrestle with. It's like, God, are you really going to come through? Are you going to give me the protection in life I need? Are you going to give me the provision in life that I need? whether that's physically or materially or some other way. And we start to get doubtful, and that's when we can start to take matters into our own hands and really ruin things. And there's a place to just wait, okay? One commentator said this, faith is a problem when it clings to the problematic present. Think about that. When I just look at my past and I primarily start thinking about all the problems I've had, all the hardships I've had, all the pain that I've had, it's hard to trust God. Because, hey, God, I've had a pretty bumpy road so far. A lot of pain and hardship. But we have to let God's word have more influence over us than the circumstances. It's not wrong to be affected by the circumstances. It is wrong to let circumstances affect us more than God's word affects us. Same commentator said this. If not given now, we assume it never will be. You ever dealt with that? God, I want you to do this. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. At some point, you're like, I guess it's never going to happen. Persevere in prayer, brothers. Don't give up. And then a commentator named Baldwin said this. I love this. God's delays are not denials. God's delays are not denials. If God has not given you what you're asked for yet, don't assume that's a denial that it's not coming. Okay? Maybe you're praying for the salvation of a kid. Maybe you're praying for physical healing for a grandkid. 
Maybe you're praying for revival in a church, in a nation, and there's all good things. And you're like, how long, O Lord? Persevere. Don't give up the faith. Um, how many of you have ever had the joyous experience of teaching a 15-year-old child to drive a car? Right? Okay? That'll put a few years on you right there. You know, my wife is a good driver. Not every man can say that. I can say that. My wife's a good driver. Sometimes when I'm really busy and maybe we're going on a family vacation or something, I'm like, can you drive? Because if I can sit over in the passenger seat and work for the next six hours, I will be able to be fully there once we get to the vacation. And she says, great. And you know what? When she's driving, I can lock in and I'm not thinking about anything. I trust her. I have never done that with a 15-year-old. Right? When the 15-year-old is in the driver's seat and you're in the passenger seat, you are on hyper alert. Your head is on the swivel looking for what's coming. You wish that you had a brake pad over on your side like those driver's ed cars, an extra steering wheel, and you don't. But you're hanging on for dear life, and you are trying to give coaching. Guys, some of us act that way with God. Hey, God, have you thought about this? What about this? We... We ought to be more like I am with my wife when she drives. Hey, God, I'm going to do my part, but I trust you. There, there's a whole bigger part out there. You're running the whole universe, and you've been doing it for thousands of years before I got here. I trust you to keep doing a good job with it, okay? All of us struggle with this temptation to fear where we need to be living by faith. Let's keep going. What does it look like to live by faith? Look in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted him as righteousness. Now, he says, I'm going to keep my word. I know it's been 25 years. I'm going to keep my word. You're going to get a son. In fact, you're going to have so many descendants. Go look at the stars. More than the stars. The human eye, you look at the night, best, best, clearest night, best right part of the hemisphere, maybe you can see 4,000 stars if you counted them all. And even with telescopes, we can't see them all and count them all. Innumerable. This was an overwhelming promise, okay? And guys, verse 6, I've got to camp out here for just a second, really important verse. This is a very important verse, especially to Paul in the New Testament, This is kind of a side note, but this is a really good one. How were people saved? How did people get right with God in the Old Testament? Really, the exact same way you get saved, you get right with God in the New Testament. They believe God, they put their faith in God, and he credits it to them as righteousness. They were trusting in a future coming Messiah that had been promised in Genesis chapter 3, the coming snake crusher. It was a very shadowy trust because they didn't know much about him. We look back to a Messiah that's already come once and he's risen from the dead and we put our faith in him. But the faith is the key. And this idea, he believed God and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God, this, this might be one of the most crucial doctrines in the whole Bible. It's like I have a bankrupt bank account. Reckoned is like an it, it imputed. It's, it's a banking term. It's a financial term. And if I had some wealthy friend who was a billionaire and he said, you know what, I'm going to cover your deficit and I'm just going to put an extra billion in your account. You haven't done anything, but I just like you. So I'm going to wipe out your deficit, but I'm just not getting you back to zero. I'm just going to overload your account so you will never go into deficit again. That's a good picture. When I just say, I am helpless, 
and my naked soul, in a sense, reaches out to God helplessly, and I say, but I trust you. He says, I give you the gift of righteousness. I make you righteous, although you've done nothing to deserve it. That's salvation. That's how we get saved. That's how Abraham got saved. Look at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, guys, this may not seem like great faith, but it's real faith. It's wrestling faith. You don't have to have perfect faith. You have to have sincere faith. And sometimes when you're struggling with doubt, when you're struggling with fear, it's fine to pray and wrestle with God and say, God, I want to trust you, but I'm having a hard time. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is Mark chapter 9. Do you remember this one? Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration. Nine of the disciples have been trying to cast a demon out of a little boy. It's not working. And the dad comes to Jesus kind of desperate and says, if you can do anything, would you heal my son? And Jesus, seemingly indignant, says, if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. And I love the man's wrestling faith. He says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus says, not good enough. Get out of here. Of course he doesn't say that. He says, I'll heal your son. You don't have to have perfect faith. You have to have honest faith, a humble faith, a wrestling faith, a desperate faith, a clinging faith. And sometimes that asks questions, guys. Think about in the New Testament. When an angel came to Zechariah, the prophet said, hey, you're going to have a baby, even though your wife's barren. And he's like, what? This is the Olin translation. He had a little bit of arrogance. His doubt was more in arrogance. Like, man, I've been living life long and it doesn't work. And the angel said, oh, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You'll be dumb. You won't be able to speak for nine months because I don't like the way you talk. And then when the baby's born, then you can talk again. That's the kind of arrogant questioning we don't need to do of God. But sweet little Virgin Mary as a teenage girl, she knew enough about the birds and the bees that when the angel said, you're going to have a baby, she's like... I don't get it. How's this going to be? And he just said, trust me, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. Here's the point, guys. When you're wrestling in this dynamic between fear and faith, it's not sinful. It's not wrong to ask questions. It's the attitude of your heart. If it's arrogant know-it-allism, that doesn't make sense to me. God's not going to like that. But notice, he still gave Zechariah the baby. That's how gracious and wonderful he is. But if you can have a humble faith, I'm just struggling down here, God. Help me. God loves to give extra help, extra grace to the humble. James chapter 4, verse 6. Keep your finger in Genesis 15. We're coming right back. But flip to the New Testament, Romans chapter 4 for a minute. Romans chapter 4. Flip over there with me. This is a great passage, kind of Paul's commentary on the story that we're reading now. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 18. Romans chapter 4, listen to this. In hope, speaking about Abram, in hope he believed against hope. Right? He had no reason to hope, practically speaking, except God's voice. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring breed. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So he's saying, listen, true spiritual faith is not stupid, it doesn't check its mind at the door. What, he, what Paul is probably saying here was Abram was thinking practically and his body was as good as dead probably means he was impotent. And he's like, God, we got massive problems down here as far as having a baby. 
I'm trying to believe you, but I do not understand how this thing is going to work. You, you can wrestle. It's not wrong to wrestle. But it says as he wrestled it, he thought about it. He, he didn't grow weak in his faith. He actually got stronger. Look at verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Hey, God, I don't get it, but I trust you. Hey, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. And your faith will get stronger. That's what happened to him. Okay? This is not some easy, laid-back, passive faith. It's an active faith. It's a wrestling faith. Okay? Now, listen. You may be listening to this. You may say, oh, and I have something really hard going on in my life. And I'm trying to have humble faith and all that, be more like Mary, but I feel more angry and doubt. Then, guys, if that's what you feel, go ahead and talk to the Lord about it. He's not going to be surprised. He knows it's in your heart. And the best hope you have of getting your heart healed is just say, God, I got a lot of anger and frustration in my heart at you. I know it's sin. I don't like it, but help me. Help my faith grow. Help my peace grow. Help my contentment grow. Okay, back to Genesis 15. Pick up right where we left off. Don't live by fear. Live by faith. And when you do live more by faith and less by fear, you will experience real fulfillment. Genesis 15, look at verse 9. He said to him, this is God speaking to Abram, because remember, the question was, well, how can I know for sure? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half. So God didn't even tell him what to do with them. He knows what to do with them. And I'll explain that in a minute. Cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. This is a prophecy about Egypt. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces on the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, what's going on here? In the ancient Near East, when you wanted to have a contract, you didn't have a notary public. And and oftentimes what would happen is you would have some great country, an empire, and maybe there would be some little city-state. And the great empire would say, hey, little city-state, you can be my vassal state. You'll have to pay me some taxes, but I'll protect you. You'll be loyal to me, and if another empire tries to attack you and rape and pillage and burn, I'll protect you. And the way you made a covenant is you would cut a bunch of animals in half, and you'd lay them out, and oftentimes the king of the great empire and maybe the little mayor of the little vassal state city would walk through together saying the words of the covenant to one another. I promise to pay my taxes and be loyal, and the other guy saying, I promise to protect you if you're ever attacked. Okay, now, sometimes the great king would say, I'm not walking through the pieces. (laughs) You just walk through the pieces. And the point was, if I break my word, I get cut in half, just like these animals. I get slaughtered. Seems like contracts probably were taken a little bit more serious back in the day than they are now. All right, maybe we need to return to this better than a handshake deal. 
So when God says, hey, go get a bunch of animals, Abram knows what's coming. He said, how do I know? And God's like, I'll make a covenant with you. Abram cuts him in half. He falls into deep sleep, and he's terrified. Why? Think about if you had to make that deal. Not with just some mighty king of some mighty empire, but with the Lord of all the universe. And your part of the covenant was going to be to swear loyalty. I'll be faithful to you, God, who knows everything. And if I'm not faithful to you, I can be slaughtered like these animals. It's terrifying because you know you can't keep it. But here's what's so beautiful, guys. This smoking fire pot shows up. And it, it's, a, it's a way that God was manifesting his presence. Remember in the book of Egypt, when the people were going through the desert for 40 years, how did God show himself? He was a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. This is God manifesting his presence to Abram and saying, Abram, I'm not going to make you walk through the slaughtered pieces because I know you can't keep it. I'm going to walk through the slaughtered pieces. And what God was saying is, hey, Abram, I'm going to keep my part of the covenant and your part. I'm going to keep both sides. That's how you can trust me. That's how you know you're going to have a baby. That's how things are going to get better. Okay? So let me, let me give you a little bit maybe different, better definition, fuller definition than I gave the first week for covenant. All right? It's a unilateral treaty made in blood with implications. And I'll briefly explain. Unilateral, one party makes it. God, God didn't say, hey, Abraham, you want to make a deal? God just said, we're making a deal. I'm making a promise whether you like it or not. It's not a negotiation between parties. It's just imposed. But it's benevolent because it's from Father God. A unilateral treaty made in blood, meaning death is the consequence. You break this treaty, death is the consequence. With implications. Now, a lot of times, guys, you start studying covenant theology, and people will talk about, well, is that a conditional covenant? Is that an unconditional covenant? And I'm just going to be honest. That's not the most helpful language. Sinclair Ferguson says this, it's, it's, a, it's a covenant that has implications. It doesn't have conditions. God just said, we're doing this, Abraham. It has massive implications for how you're supposed to live your life afterwards. God has been so good to us, so gracious to us. The best illustration I can think of is like adoption. When you adopt a child, you don't go to the orphanage and say, well, kid, you put up this much money, let's have a negotiation and then I'll bring you in the family. And you say, hey, kid, I'm taking you whether you like it or not. But now that you live in my house, there are some house rules. That's a great picture of how salvation works and the covenant of grace works. So um, let me just give a couple points of application. Okay. I hope around the tables today, maybe you can talk about where is it that you are struggling the most with fear? And I'm not talking about fearing the Lord in a positive way. I'm talking about fearing circumstances in a sinful way. Remember, all Sin starts with some kind of doubt. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Anything that's not from faith is sin. Where are you struggling with fear? Okay. Second thing, ask yourself this. Ask the brothers around the table. Are you honestly wrestling in prayer with God about it? I can't tell you. Listen, I can't tell. I mean, most of my job now is coaching campus outreach staff, people in full-time ministry. And I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting down across the table from somebody and they're talking to me about some problem in their life, whether it's in their marriage or their ministry or whatever, and something's really bothering them. And I ask what I think is a pretty normal question for one minister to ask another, well, are you praying about it? And I can't tell you how many times people say no, which I love the honesty, but usually I have a follow-up question 
You can imagine what it is. Why not? I try to say it a little bit nicer than that. But oftentimes it's this, guys. Because I've been praying so long and God hadn't done what I wanted him to, I've just given up hope. I get that answer a lot. Sometimes the answer is, I've had some really painful things happen in my life and I know God's sovereign and I don't know how he work anything good out of that, so I'm really struggling to trust God. And these are people in full-time ministry. They pass the theology exam. They're teaching the theology. A lot easier to teach it than it is to live it, guys, and believe it. Are you honestly wrestling with God in prayer about your doubts and fears like a raw, exposed nerve? Because that's where breakthroughs come through. Are you asking humble questions like Abram was? And then last, you might say, Abram got this personal visitation. Of course his faith got strong after this. He got this personal visitation. I never had anything like that. It'd be easier to have better faith. If I could have like a smoking fire pot come in my bedroom and an audible voice, I'd be a mountain of faith. Well, maybe, maybe not. Two more thoughts. Abram is a great example of resisting the temptation to be fearful, living by faith, and the means that he did that, it was his wrestling prayer life. But there's at least one greater example in the Bible. If anybody ever had a right to give into the temptation to fear, a rational reason, it was the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he started to consider what he was going to do the next day and he could feel the presence of God already pulling away from him. And even his disciples can't stay awake to help him. And he's trembling and he's sweating blood and he's like, Father, I am begging you. There's got to be a different way. There's got to be any other way out. He's asking his honest questions, but how do we know it was the humble and not the arrogant kind because he ended that prayer with, not my will, but thine. You want me to go forward with this? I'll go, Father. I might be shaking, but I'll go forward. And that's real faith. I may not like it. I may not understand it. I might tremble the whole way, Father. But if this is what you're calling me to do, I'll obey. I'll take the step of faith. And he had perfect faith in our place where we so often fail. And guys, we don't have a supernatural experience like Abram did. But with the eyes of faith, we see the cross. We see the resurrection. And that is the greatest covenant ceremony of all time. God said, I'm going to save you while you're dead in your sins. I'm going to adopt you into my family. And now I want you to obey me. Not because you have to to earn anything, but just because you want to, because you love me and you trust me. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We honor you. We love your perfect, sinless life and obedience in our place as our substitute, as our example. But as our righteous record, thank you that we can have your righteousness credited to our account by faith alone, not by works. I pray we would trust you more. I pray that we would believe that you're the rewarder of those who earnestly seek you. And so therefore, we would earnestly seek you. We would wrestle with you in prayer about our doubts and our fears and our worries. We would stay humble, but we would ask the hard questions. And Lord, you would give us the extra grace so that our faith could go strong and we could live more and more godly lives for your glory. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. 
We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. 